Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, and today we are honored to have Dr. Niall Green with us. Uh, Dr. Green is a historian of multiple globalizations of Islam and Muslims, and uh, he's been a historian of India and Pakistan, and has also traced Muslim networks that connect Afghanistan, Iran, the Indian Ocean, Africa, Japan, Europe, and America. And his list of publication is simply daunting. Uh, suffice it to say that he's the author of more than uh, more than a dozen of books and articles, and he has a new book coming out about which he'll talk about at the end of the interview. But today he's here to talk to us about a fascinating book whose title is just amazing, The Love of Strangers, What Six Muslim Students Learned in Jane Austen's London. Niall, welcome to New Books Network. Well, thank you, Mortaza. It's a real pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the invitation and the the generous introduction. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Let us uh, start by introducing yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian and how you became interested in the history of, uh, generally speaking, I guess, in the history of Islam. But uh, it's not really the religion of Islam. You're more interested in how Islam, uh, how Muslims around the world uh, have, have developed networks with other countries if that's the right, uh, the right way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I became a historian really through my own wanderings around so much of the, of the world in the Islamic world. And as in, in my late teens, leaving, uh, sort of trying to travel as far as I could, the furthest I could get was Istanbul. So the sort of the, <laughs> where Asia begins and, and Europe ends. And uh, so at the age of 17, I had my introduction to so I guess in many ways the Islamic world into Ottoman history. And I simply through my 20s, 30s, just kept traveling. I spent a lot of time in Iran, many trips there in the 90s and 2000s and studied Persian and other languages from around the region. And um, yeah, and I eventually thought, well, I better st- stop moving and get a job. So I picked up a few qualifications along the way, I guess. So that's how I became a historian. But really just my love of wandering, looking at places, meeting people from... Uh, particularly from the Islamic world, as my interests deepened in, in Islam and Muslims, let's say, you know, kind of the history of the religion as well as, you know, the people, as you say, their interactions with other parts of the world. And, um, yeah, and then I just mixed with my love of books, I guess. You know, <laughs> my love of reading and eventually writing books. Yeah, I became a story. And if I'm not mistaken, you also have contributed to uh, those famous, you know, Oxford series, a, a very short introduction to global Islam, if I'm not mistaken, am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I wrote, yeah, the very short introduction to global Islam. When I was trying to define what we might mean by that, and by that I, you know, defining really the forms of Islam that came out of, that emerged through modern globalization in the later 19th, 20th century. And that's been in many ways, you know, so many of my interests having come out of actually you know, a time of traveling by land, you know, kind of, you know, hitchhiking or uh, walking, going by bus, occasionally by donkey or camel or horse or whatever was available on the back of a motorbike many times. Um, I became very interested in really in, in uh, really how 
how how people move and how people you know how culture sort of one slides into another how people and how cultures interact i guess through individual people having been part of that myself you know kind of spent a lot of time in places like iran and other places yemen syria where you know there weren't many let's say people from britain about you know so i would be you know kind of in the the kind of roles that eventually you know i wrote about with mirza sali and the first middle eastern students the first Iranian students uh, to come to England. So, you know, my, my interest in, I guess, kind of cultural interactions and how individuals, cultures, and indeed religions interact, come into contact, you know, kind of led me to write that Global Islam book, as well as which is sort of a big picture, big picture in a little book. And here, I guess, uh, with the book we'll be talking about today, I guess, is the little picture, the micro history of half a dozen people in a somewhat longer book. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, talk about this book, The Love of Strangers, What Six Muslim Students Learned in Jane Austen's London. So this is the Sir Mirza Saleh, an Iranian student who traveled to England. Uh, first of all, tell us how the book came about, how you came to know about Mirza Saleh, because I'm from Iran and I only know there was this guy, Mirza Saleh, I guess because he started a newspaper in Iran a long time ago. Um, and and to, to, to do this research, I guess you, sp- you also speak, you read and write in Farsi as well. Yeah, because you've right. used Mirza Saleh's diaries. So tell us how the idea of the book came about, and also the title, Six Muslim Students in Jane Austen's London." Well, I, the, the the book, and indeed Mirza Saleh, as you mentioned, I mean, he was you know he, he, there was a time when he was very famous in Iran, and um, you know, sort of in the nineteen fifties and sixties, the kind of heyday of Iranian modernization, because as you say, Mortiza, he'd founded the first Iranian newspaper, which is in a sense, comes at the end of my story when he takes back a printing press from uh, from London. And um, But actually, I didn't actually previously know about uh, Mirza Saleh, nor indeed his diary. And I was browsing through the bookshelves of University Library, and um, and I came across his diary. And it actually, I was, at that point in my life, I was, I was leaving Oxford, where I'd had sort of, you know, four happy years... Uh, as a research fellow, but then I was being thrown out into the, the wider world. And when I uh, read, uh, just leafing through Mr. Salah's diary, I found his account of, of Oxford. And uh, he was actually rather unimpressed by Oxford, its pomp and ceremony, the sort of, the, you know, its high rituals, degree days, and so on. And actually, when I was leaving Oxford, perhaps uh, doesn't reflect very well on me, but for the Oxford magazine, I, I um, the official magazine of the university, I, I, I translated that sort of account of this uh, Persian perception of Oxford. And, and then, as the years went by, and I read more of the more of his diary, I thought, "Gosh, this is so extraordinarily interesting," um, because it, he really was in the midst of uh, what I came to call Jane Austen's London, but also, you know, the time of England, the Napoleonic Wars, the period when really the British Empire is starting to take shape, but still, you know, it, it hasn't become this sort of dominant global behemoth it'll become you know in the second half and by the end of the 19th century um, and it's really in the context of the Napoleonic Wars that um, a series of as I began to read more and read around the the, the diary of Mr. Saleh there was this the, during the Napoleonic Wars this is sort of set up a sort of a, a a series of, let's say, global diplomatic missions of the British and the French and indeed the Russians sending embassies to various countries, including to Iran or Persia, as it was then called, of course, in English. And uh, and, and 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 this sort of, you know, kind of got me in, in a way kind of very interested because this is a period when when Britain needed 
an Iranian ally, you know, kind of against Napoleon and so on. And indeed, the Iranians needed um, an ally, whether French or British, against the Russians, who were just then, you know, kind of invading what's now, you know, kind of the Caucasus, Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia. And then, of course, it was the the, the literary kind of draw, really, that that kind of caught my, I suppose, imagination, really, as a, as a lover of books than as much as a historian. And realizing, well, yeah, this was exactly the same period when they, Mr. Siley and his five friends were in London and, and going to places like Bath and Cheltenham and the other places that Jane Austen wrote about in her various books. And then it, it, I set about reading Austen again and reading more of her own biography and finding, gosh, an awful lot of connections. Her brother worked for the uh, in the Navy of the East India Company. She herself wore the same kind of fashionable Persian Kashmiri shawl um, that Mirza Saleh brought to England as a kind of currency and the police, as they were called in English. And when he went round Bath, just as in Jane Austen's novels, he was wearing one of these pelisses that would be uh, one of these shawls that was described in the fashionable newspapers of Bath. Um, and, and indeed, as I sort of reading Austin's own biography, I realised when they turned up in London, she was actually living there with, with her brother and perhaps even went to the same theatre. She was a keen theatre-goer. There are only a couple of theatres in London at the time, so chances are she was going to the same theatres that Mirza Saleh would enjoy going to, you know, these tamashakhanas, as they were called, these places of spectacle. Um, so it became uh, too much for me to resist to stick Jane Austen in the title, in short. Yeah, now I can see the connection. Uh, and you do talk about like the, 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 the types of clothing that they wear and how somehow they were, became sort of known because there was also the Iranian ambassador in England. But we'll talk about them in a minute. Uh, let's talk about these six Iranian students. Were they the very first group of Muslims who officially traveled to to Europe, let's say, but in this case to England to study. And, and who were they? Uh, and you talk about Jane Austen. There was also Mr. Darcy there was a connection between these uh, six Muslim students and how he helped them be, become established in England. So can you talk about these six Muslim students briefly, who, who they were and who sent them to England? And who was Mr. Who was Captain Joseph Darcy? That's right, the real Mr. Darcy. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, the question of the, the, the first Muslim students to study in Europe. Yeah, well, the first group of Muslim students, I think that's... Uh, um, I think a sort of historically accurate description. There'd been uh, an individual Egyptian or one or two individual Egyptians who'd come to study in Italy, sort of in the 1810s in the wake of Napoleon's invasion in Italy, and indeed who'd turned up in a couple of Egyptian Christians who'd come to study in, in Paris. But this was the first group of Muslim students who'd come, you know, with a dedicated purpose of coming to Europe to study. And what they were sent to study was what was being called then in in Persian, either the Ulumi Jadid or the Ulumi Farangi, the, the, the European sciences or the new sciences. So effectively, the new sciences that were, the, the new applied sciences, really, that were coming out of the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution in Europe. So because, uh, as I mentioned, the Iran, and particularly northwest Iran, where the students were, well, before those students, where these six young men were based in Tabriz in northwestern Iran today, this was on the frontier with the invading Russian Empire, um, and the sort of a, the uh, Abbas Mirza, who was the son of the Fatali Shah, the the ruler of Iran, 
um, he decided that it would be a, a good idea to send a bunch of his, his courtiers, his junior administrators, the, who are called mirzas, these sort of men of the pen, if you like, to go to study the latest of, of European chemistry, engineering, military engineering, medicine, and in Mirza Saleh's case, languages, presumably to become a sort of a diplomat with these new interactions with, with Europe, whether with Russia, France, or England. And really, um, Abbas Mirza, so the student sponsor and, I guess, boss and their prince, it was really, it, it, we, we know from letters that were written in Tabriz, sort of in 1815 before they set off, it was a spur of the moment kind of enterprise in which because of this um, alliance, alliance between Britain and, uh, and, and Iran at the time, a number of uh, British military advisors and soldiers had been sent to that corner of Iran to help prepare the Persian army to defend themselves against, against Russia. And one of those figures then was this Captain Joseph Darcy. And he was about to go home on furlough, having served in India, and then having served alongside the, the Iranians fighting against the, the Russians, he was about to go home and furlough and he was going to pay his respects and say goodbye to the Prince Abbas Mirz. And the Prince said, well, would you mind awfully if you took these six young fellows with you? And <laughs> I guess, um, you know, you, you don't say no to a prince's request like that. So he said yes, he took them with them. Um, and then when they moved to England then, they um, they moved in with him in his his bachelor pad, the real Mr. Darcy's bachelor pad on Leicester Square, no less, in London, which then as now was the kind of the the entertainment zone of, uh, of, of Regency London, of Jane Austen's London, run by the theatres. There was a, a hammam, a Turkish bath, so to speak, right underneath, where uh, underneath uh, Darcy's apartment. And they lived there together for a number of months. And yeah, and of course, yeah, that the fact that there was this real Mr. Darcy, you know, kind of uh, made me... Uh, made me think, okay, this is the, the Jane Austen kind of link as well. I mean, but there was a kind of a, it wasn't always a happy picture too, because what the reason why Jane Austen has so many of these sort of, you know, kind of officers and gentlemen in her novels uh, was because this was the Napoleonic War and this was a, a period when there were so many, you know, kind of soldiers involved. But just as, as Austen died, she died a year after the students arrived in London. But her novels were published during the subsequently during the years that they remained there till 1819. Um, so many of these dashing officers that she'd written about suddenly found themselves unemployed. It was a sort of, you know, kind of the war was over. You know, the Battle of Waterloo was just, the, you know, kind of in the summer that the students arrived. And Joseph Darcy came back then to London and found himself out of a job. So, you know, he was caught in the situation of, of hosting these students, trying to set up an educational program for them 200 years, let's say, before you had the sort of the phenomenon very normal nowadays in London and other globalised cities of the, of the international student. Who would pay for them? Uh, how would you go about finding a, a placement for them in the universities, of which, of course, in Britain, and there are only two. And as we might talk about, the difficulty was that even if you were a Catholic or a, a Baptist Christian, let alone a Shi'i Muslim, you weren't allowed to study at Oxford or Cambridge. So <laughs> that was a little challenge that they would have to try to overcome. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the, he, the the adventures in Cambridge and um, Oxford as well. So let's, uh, and I, they didn't speak in English when they arrived. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea that how Joseph, uh, Captain Darcy, you know, Live with them for for a few months. 
I don't know if there was any language barrier. So if, if there is anything that you know about that, it would be great if you could tell us. But also, uh, let's talk also talk about he, the Iran's ambassador in London at that time, now that you've discussed what London looked like um, when they, those students arrived. There was also the Iranian ambassador in England, if I'm not mistaken. His name was Abul Hassan Khan Ilchi, who was sort of a famous maybe not celebrity, but it was sort of famous in London. Can you also tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, 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 yeah, I'll start off with what you were saying about Persian and the question of communication. I mean, what really fascinated me about the possibilities of, of Mirza Saleh's diary and writing a book out of it was that, you know, we often talk about, you know, kind of cultures in harmony or culture clashes or all of these kind of big abstractions, you know, uh, how is Islam, you know, Islam and Europe or all these things. But now suddenly through this diary, we've got, well, okay, the, let's look at the microhistory, the human story, the, you know, kind of ground level between a few people involved. How does this happen? Well, it turned out, fortunately, for the students, who are absolutely right, didn't learn English because English wasn't a global language, wasn't a significant language. It was barely really a language of empire, you know, because at this point, the East India Company, the company empire, which was, then really just starting to expand across India in the previous couple of decades. Um, the East India Company administered the bits of India, mostly Bengal, that it administered at that point through Persian. So any of the East India Company office, uh, uh, let's say the East India Company military officers or indeed the East India Company administrators had to study Persian. So Persian at this point was still this kind of, you know, kind of Eurasian language of, of, of literature, certainly high literature, but also of international diplomacy and of of um, of statecraft and bureaucracy. So earlier in the earlier in the nineteenth century, the East India Company established two colleges near London, um, in which people like Joseph Darcy would study Persian before they went to India, and then subsequently Darcy, of course, had spent um, a, a year or eighteen months in Iran. So he was able to speak Persian. So he was, in a sense, their interpreter at that point. Um, but then, indeed, they, they would go on to learn English. We might talk about their English teachers, including aptly John Shakespeare, who claimed to be a descendant of, <laughs> of William Shakespeare. Um, and, and they learned English to such an extraordinary degree um, that, you know, we have their letters written in English as well. But, you know, such, uh, you know, kind of uh, not just fluency, but... Uh, a level of refinement that would associate, of, you know, with the age of Jane Austen. As for Abul Hassan Khan Ilchi, the the ambassador, yeah, the, the the only the second Persian ambassador to Britain. The the first had been two hundred years earlier. Um, yeah, he used the word celebrity, and he absolutely was. He he was a celebrity in in fashionable Regency London. Um, he was invited to all the finest balls and parties. Um, he wrote his own account of uh, of being in London and and his uh, his perceptions of um, the city of London and but also of London society and high society. And he was painted by uh, two of the most fashionable portrait artists of uh, of you know Jane Austen's era. And we have these really you know one of them I used in the book as one of the images. These really beautiful images of him and his fine ambassadorial robes. And, and the painter was Sir William Beachy, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Mr. Salah's diary. Let's talk about that a little bit. You read the diary in Persian, if I'm not mistaken. I 
can't imagine how we did that. I still can't read some of the writings from, from those days in uh, in Farsi. But has this diary been translated into English? No, no, it hasn't actually. Yeah, you're right. It's sort of a you know somewhat antiquated form of Persian, but that suited me. I actually studied Persian at Cambridge, and that you know years ago before I first went to Iran, and uh, and that's where you know the idea of Mirza Saleh going to Cambridge and going around those same place was appealing to me. And it was sort of, uh, I mean, quite funny what you, you know, kind of what you say, which reminds me when I first went to Iran, having only read, you know, kind of Rumi and <laughs> and Dakiki and classical Persian, I was kind of speaking in this medieval mode, first of all. So, um, yeah, so, so yeah, I was able to read the, read the, read the diary and, and it hasn't been translated, but, you know, in the book, it's in, you know, my book, The Love of Strangers, I translate some of the sections of it, you know, his, his descriptions of Bath and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, what I liked, uh, there was one beautiful description. I think, I don't remember if it was Cambridge or Oxford that he saw the statue of Newton. And uh, you've translated it, he's the eye and the lantern of England. And that's exactly the same Persian expression we use, chish mocherov, iron lantern, like this is a feathering cap. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, lovely idea that you noticed that. That's right. I mean, I mean, what I think we really see here, that's right, is, is that what, what really, I really really appealed to me deeply about Mirza Salih and the other students is that these were real humanists. They were true cosmopolitans. They were people who were really interested in following knowledge wherever it went to. Of course, there's the famous hadith saying of the Prophet Muhammad, you know, seek knowledge even unto China. So they remained Muslims. Um, but this search for knowledge from Christians, from Westerns, from Europeans, there was no sense that of what later Iranian, even Iranian ideologues would call Habzadegi of being West oxycated and that you shouldn't go and look to the West. They were told by their own prophets, seek knowledge wherever, in China, to the East, to the West, it doesn't matter. It's knowledge, it's learning. That is a, a good thing for human beings to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And when they arrived in London, they didn't immediately start their... Uh, their, let's say, educational journey. And they kind of ran out of money, right? They spent all the money they had in the first few months. So can you tell us about their first few months in London, what places they frequented? And they also, because they ran out of money, they started earning money by teaching Persian. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about those first few months when they were in England? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so there had been... Um, a couple, two years earlier, through these same kind of interactions in the Napoleonic Wars, two other students from Iran had been sent to London. One of them had died uh, and was buried in St. Pancras churchyard. I actually been around that churchyard. It's actually anybody who goes to London, you know, perhaps often goes to the King's Cross International Terminal, and it's actually just be up behind that, the old graveyard. And I went round looking to see if you had a grave. It's a fascinating graveyard, in fact, because, uh, a bit of an aside, but Thomas Hardy, the great novelist, his first job as an architect was clearing that graveyard to make way for the railway station. And with his architectural interests and his artistic interests, Hardy kept the most interesting gravestones. Now, there's no gravestone there with the, with the, the name of the, 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 this, uh, uh, these early student who died there. Um, but there is actually a gravestone that has Islamic, not calligraphy, but the sort of the Islamic form of the gravestone, long and thin, you know, that kind of style that you would know. So anyway, so he was there and he, well, he died, but very quickly of, of cholera, I think. But another student had stayed called uh, Haji Baba, and he was a medical student. So between, on the one hand, Joseph Darcy, who spoke Persian, and Haji Baba, who 
spoke Persian, of course, as a compatriot, but also been there in England for a couple of years and, and spoke good English. They started to, even though they're running out of money, they started to find their way and sort of find their feet in London. But yeah, you're, you're right. Their money ran out pretty quickly, even though they had this princely patron. It, on the one hand, nobody had any idea of what then what an international education might cost, and uh, and on the other hand, they were while well, they were living it up. We actually now I managed to find some of their 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 bills from how much they'd spent in these very fashionable coffee shops and buying a pocket watch, uh, which was the kind of I guess the kind of iPhone ten or whatever of the time, you know, the kind of must have that came at a price. Uh, so they, yeah. Anyway, so the, the money was running out, and it was actually then at that point that Mr. Salih starts to emerge as the kind of the leader of the group, really. And he realizes they've got to move out of fashionable central London. They move down to Croydon, which is kind of apt because Croydon now um, is actually the place where any refugee uh, uh, processing, you know, kind of England, anyone trying to get refugee status to stay in, in England, will have to go through Croydon. It's where the main offices are. So I kind of find it kind of apt that they were there, you know, kind of all that time ago. But the reason they went down there, Ms. Asadi was very astute, was because this was the place where one of the two East India Company colleges I mentioned that were teaching Persian, they were down there. So there are all kinds of British uh, young sort of students at the Addiscombe College at Croydon who, you know, needed to pass their Persian exams. So Mirza Saleh, particularly him, maybe some of the other students uh, too, uh, they all moved down to Croydon, or, or nearly all of them, and they started yeah, teaching teaching Persian. But they also started then getting formal English lessons. And, and it was there that they met this, uh, this Professor Shakespeare, John Shakespeare, who, um, who, who for his part was the teacher of Hindustani, as it was called then, Urdu, as we'd say now, which is a language very closely related to Persian. He also knew Persian. So, uh, but they so they took English lessons from him as well as someone um, um, by the um, by the name of Mr. Bissett. And one one of the, the kind of fun challenges for me of reading the Mrs. Ali's diary was seeing all of these English names written in Arabic script, and then trying to work out you know kind of who these people were, and trying you know transliterating from you know what, what this name would be, and then who it could be, and then trying to find their papers. So for me, it was a real journey into English history. I mean, I'm British, but I've lived for a good many years in the US. So it was a way for me to kind of, through Mirza Saleh, to rediscover London and to, you know, to actually discover some of these curious corners of English history, like tracking down, yeah, this that other teacher in Croydon who ran, ran a gentleman's academy, the Reverend uh, Bissett. Uh, yeah, and various other people like that, who uh, such as uh, a figure we might talk about, who was named in the in the diary as Dr. McReed, but was actually Mr. McBride. And when I went back to the original manuscript, I could actually see you'll recognize this Montezo, but it's very easy for the for you know, with the misplacing of the, just a dot then when you know a manuscript gets printed, you can actually quite easily go from McBreed to Bukreed. So once I realized it wasn't Bukreed, it was McBreed. Well, that was Professor McBride who taught Arabic at Oxford. Yeah, and he's also in one of my questions about Dr. McBride. We'll talk about him soon. And it was interesting. I were talking about trying to decipher what what names they were because I have this friend who used to do some sort of a module monitoring monitoring thing, and he just once texted me and he said, "How many different ways of spelling Sayyid, which is like the, the the ancestor of Prophet? Do you have like every country I checked? There's a different way of spelling, and he was using some kind of a computer." 
software and it was just confused like as how many inputs he has to put into that software to figure out different ways of spelling and i said yeah in iran we spell it different in arabic they spell it differently anyhow uh there's also this figure uh sir Sergor Uzli, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. So how did he help them sort of start their formal education and get them into schools? What was his yeah, role? Sergor well, Uzli is a really interesting character because he, he'd gone out to India really as a sort of as a, as a trader, really, not as part of the East India Company, not as part of that company empire. Um, and he'd, he'd gone upriver to beyond the places where the East India Company actually had any formal authority. Uh, and he'd settled in in Lucknow, in a sort of one of the old major Muslim centres in India. That was actually then a, a, a really, a really important, in fact, a Shi'i Muslim state in India at that time. That actually had a lot of uh, Iranian emigres who moved from Iran to this flourishing Shi'i kingdom in, in North India. And uh, Gore Uzli stayed there for a number of years. He was working as a trader, but he was obviously had his cultural, literary, intellectual interest. He studied Persian with local uh, sheikhs, local teachers there. He bought his own collection of Persian manuscripts, and, and then he retired back to England. And when he was in England then, because of his language skills, he was uh, sent to Iran as uh, one of these sort of rapid short series during these Napoleonic Wars and this global diplomacy. He was sent to Iran as one of the ambassadors to England. And it was actually during that journey in 1811 that he first met Mirza Saleh, in fact, before Mirza Saleh ever came to, to England. They travelled around Iran together. So when Mirza Saleh and the students were, were in England and yeah, they, they'd run out of money and they couldn't find a way how they were actually going to get this education they'd been sent for. Um, he, uh, Mr. Saleh turned to Sagor Uzli and also another figure who'd been an ambassador to Iran as well, John Malcolm. John Malcolm actually wrote a book, the first serious history of Iran, Malcolm's History of Persia. He'd published that in 1815, the year the students arrived. Byron read it, was fascinated by it. It inspired Byron to write some of his poetry um, and um, yeah, it was actually subsequently translated into Persian as well, and became sort of a, you know kind of a quite a major influence how Iranians themselves in the nineteenth century started to see their history, particularly their pre-Islamic history. Um, so yeah, so Mirza um, Saleh then is able to speak again in Persian. It's still early on in his time in in London at this time. Um, that yeah, with uh, John Malcolm and, and Gore Uzli, he's actually Uzli then. As an ambassador, then he's got these kind of high connections then in government of the kind that Joseph Darcy, Captain Darcy, just doesn't. He's just an unemployed soldier, you know, at this point. So, um, so it's Gore Usley who kind of uh, becomes the, I guess, the chaperone really for the students and starts then to find placements for them, you know, to find places where they can study according to their different specialties. Um, and then, yeah, and then things start to be smoother sailing for them then. They uh, sort of, yeah, they don't actually end up studying in the English universities, and, and not least because, as we might turn to, Mr. Salim, one of his companions, Mr. Jafar, they do a tour of Oxford and Cambridge and subsequently make a, quite a number of visits, particularly to Cambridge. But they actually realise that the stuff they've been sent to study in England, these ulumi jadid, these new sciences, Oxford and Cambridge, you can't really study science at that point. These are still places that you'll study theology or law. So, you know, one of the apt 
terms of phrase that Mezzasali uses. He calls these the madrasas of Oxford, you know, because they really still are, you know, clerical colleges at that point, not places where you can study science. So, um, yeah, so they, they tour Oxford and Cambridge, but they never formally study there. Yeah, I especially like that comparison to madrasas. So I sometimes talk to my friends, some of them are really into science and they kind of hate humanities. I come from a humanities background, so I always try to defend humanities and I say, well, you know that uh, science, I mean, science started from humanities, from philosophy, right? <laughs> That's what was studied in universities back then. So the way uh, he describes it as madrasas is, is, is fascinating. And uh, let's talk about the types of sciences that they studied. Uh, some of them studied, uh, they went into a military school. I think it was Mirza Jafar Mirza Reza, and Mirza Reza, if I'm not mistaken. And they met uh, somebody called Colonel William Mudge. So can you tell us uh, about that episode? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so as you mentioned, yeah, two, so two of the, stu- the students study medicine, two study, um, yeah, mil- engineering, military engineering. Then, yeah, this, uh, the uh, Royal Military College in Woolwich now. The building still exists, but of course, it's an apartment building now, but <laughs> that's London for you. And uh, uh, Muhammad Ali, uh, he was the, let's say, the artisan, really. He was an ustad, a master craftsman, and he goes and we might talk about him because he ends up with the, the sort of the, the revolutionary workers, I guess, <laughs> on the edges of Jane Austen's London in the East End at the time. But the two students who 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 study with uh, with uh, Colonel Mudge, it's sort of interesting because um, one of the things they end up studying as as engineers is um, is surveying, and uh, and the actual the the new principles at this point with the theodolite and so on of actual precision surveying and pre- precision map making and uh and Mirza Jafar later in his life um he will um, become a diplomat and ambassador in his own right and he'll be part of the commission that actually decides on the the former modern boundary between the Ottoman Empire uh and Iran and I think they're probably still now the border between Turkey uh, and, and Iran perhaps even Turkey and, and Iraq so, yeah, so they studied these map-making techniques. And actually, one of the people who'd studied there just a couple of years before them took the same course of training, used the same textbooks that I was uh, tracking down, was someone, well, we might remember the second half of his name now, but not the first part, a guy called George, George Everest. And it was he was the surveyor who was surveying the, the Himalayas, after whom subsequently Mount Everest was named. I should probably add here in... in you know that might seem make might make seem um, Everest seem like a terrible big head. He was actually dead against uh, the um, the highest mountain in the Himalaya being called after him. He thought this was a terrible, disgraceful idea, but uh, it was uh, it happened uh, nonetheless. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, again, a few days ago, I was in the car with a friend of mine. He was driving back home from work, and. He was talking. He was talking about Himalayas, and I said, "Well, oh, did you know that the mount? Because he always fascinates him. How how come the, the the name is not really? It doesn't really sound like a native name there, right? <laughs> yeah. And I had to do a little bit of research to find out how the mountain came to be known after Mr. Um, Everest. Anyhow, uh, so you talked about their military studies, and they were also. Uh, they, also, they also studied medicine and astronomy uh, as, as a part of those new fields of science. So can you tell us uh, who, which one of these students has studied medicine or tried to study medicine and astronomy as well? Yeah, well, this was the, the other. There were two Mirza Jafars, one who become, became known as Mirza Jafar Mohandis, to distinguish him, Mirza Jafar, the, the engineer. And the other one was uh, Mirza Jafar Tabib, Mirza Jafar, the, the medical student. 
Um, and yeah, and then he was studying kind of chemistry as well as all sorts of, you know, within this sort of medical program. And they were studying uh, together with uh, Haji Baba, then, who was the two medical students and chemistry students. They were actually studying in, in the hospital in, in West London that were actually Grey's Anatomy and Dr. Grey of Grey's Anatomy, you know, that famous medical textbook still today. That was, you know, would, would be written, published a few years later, but that uh, course of surgery, in fact, was uh, was happening there. They also studied in the, the world's first um, medical theatre, you know, and that's how we get still the phrase today of going into theatre, you know, that idea that then revolutionary at the time that this wouldn't be a private gory thing you would have students sitting around in the theater to learn from it so they really were on the kind of the cusp of of these you know kind of major uh discoveries in the sciences which would change the way we live through to this day and you mentioned too the the astronomical interests and this was another one of the little linguistic puzzles actually in the in the diary, because uh, there was a, a term or two words, jadjamsidis, and I couldn't find these two words written in, you know, in Persian Arabic script jadjamsidis in any Persian diary. And but still, there was this explanation that there was this person called uh, um, William Herschel. That name was clear enough to, you know, I managed to crack that easy enough. And he was this really famous astronomer, and and he'd built in his garden this huge telescope that, you know, the I suppose the prototype of you know the mega telescopes of this day, and it was through that telescope that he'd managed to spot uh, that most distant uh, planet in our solar system that we now know as Uranus. But but he gave it this name in Latin, Georgium Sidius, which in Latin meant George's star after his patron King George. And then I realised, okay, that's the the Latin name for. Uranus, as we now know it, uh, that was in the diary. So, yeah, so they went out there to to Windsor and, and saw the telescope, discussed, um, you know, these literally kind of cosmos-changing discoveries that change not just how we see the Earth, but, but how we see the heavens. Among the scientific equipment they took back with them were a number of telescopes as well, um, which had these, you know, practical, I guess, kind of on-the-ground military purposes. But... In, in Persian and, and, and in Arabic at the time, the, there was no distinction, no distinct word for what we would say in English now, astronomy and astrology. You know, there was still one word, el-man-najun, el the knowledge of the science of the stars. So these interests were, were there in, among Iranian scholars too. But now there was a different different heavens to look at that had a, had a different planet in there. Uh, let's go back to the most famous uh, uh, student from all these six, Mirza Saleh again. So uh, um, he, he visited Cambridge, he visited Oxford, he didn't formally study there, but there were a couple of people who were kind of influential in helping him get to know these two places of education. Uh, Professor Samuel Lee of Cambridge and also uh, the person you mentioned earlier, Dr. McBride whose name was terribly spelled, I guess, <laughs> in the diary. So can you tell us, and, and Mirza Sali studied uh, languages there. Tell us a little about him and how Professor Samuel Lee, uh, uh, what, what was his interaction with him? Yeah, right, yeah. So this for me was one of the most fascinating because sort of unexpected and initially really kind of 
paradoxical and puzzling elements of, of, of Mrs. Ali's time in, in England. Because, yeah, as, as you mentioned, Mottese, he'd Mrs. Sali, his focus was to study languages in order to be able to presumably go back and become a diplomat and, and help Iran, I don't know, get better treaties, I guess, with these, uh, you know, European ambassadors who are now turning up in, in the country. So he studied English. He also studied French. Uh, he studied Latin uh, as well. Um, and he all, already knew Arabic because he was a, you know, he was a Mirza. He was one of the Ahli Qalam, one of the, you know, men of the pen. He was already learned. And it seems from his interactions with, with Gore Uzli and uh, that he also knew Hindi or what we would now call Urdu. There were quite a few, I mean, you know, there were actually quite close interactions between um, Qajar Iran and late Mughal and indeed East India Company India at this time that being the ambassador to London who we talked about, he'd spent a number of his years in Calcutta in exile with the East India Company before he was allowed back into Iran. So, yeah, so the fact that Mr. Sali knew, you know, Hindi as well as Middle Eastern languages, and now he's learning all these European languages. So he's got this kind of clutch of, of, uh, of languages. He, he reads because he wants to understand the Europeans. He wants to understand how they became who they are. So his diary really is, it's partly a diary, but it's also his account of English history. And it seems to me I tried to work out where he got this, it gives, you know, a something like a 60-page summary of English history from the Roman Empire onwards. And he pays particular attention to the rise of science and particular a couple of episodes in, in sort of scientific discovery, the discovery of the pulse by Harvey, and, and also particular interest to how the English constitution came about. And some Iranian political historians, have, I'm not an expert on this, but have said that Mr. Sali is perhaps the, the first person to start talking about the idea of a uh, a mashrute government, a constitutional government, he you know uses this term. So he's very interested in in Magna Carta, in the point in the what English historians would traditionally call the Glorious Revolution, when the king loses his power to the Parliament for permanently in English history. So he's learning you know languages and making the best possible, let's say, intellectual usage, the best possible you know, kind of social and political usage for his own country through learning uh, learning these languages, English and French and, and Latin, which, of course, was still, you know, not quite, but was, you know, had just, just then being overtaken by the European vernaculars, English and French, as the language of science in Europe. So he, he goes to, makes these journeys to Oxford and Cambridge, um, initially to, to see if he would be able to study there. And I think it's through through his own decision as much as, sort of an inability to let him in there. He wouldn't be able to formally take a degree, as I said, because he's he's a Muslim and even, you know, English Catholics, etc., couldn't study it, uh, or, or indeed, you know, dissenting Baptists or other Protestants couldn't take a degree there. But there were all sorts of people who had informally studied there. There'd been Indian students and others who'd been brought to, to study informally in Oxford and Cambridge. So... It's actually Gore Uzli then, the former ambassador who becomes Mrs. Harlan, the student's uh, protege, uh, or rather, uh, uh, I suppose, protector, um, sponsor. He writes to Samuel Lee and Dr. McBride because they were both the teachers of, of Arabic at Oxford and, and Cambridge, thinking that, oh, they'll perhaps be interested in these 
you know, rare, highly educated students from Iran. Um, but what's kind of interesting, and this for me was fascinating, because this was actually made me understand that Edward Said's famous account of, of Orientalism was actually kind of really historically flawed. Because Said famously writes, describes Orientalism as, as a product of the secular enlightenment. But actually, when we look at, 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 at Lee, Samuel Lee and, and, and John McBride, who were the premier Orientalists in England at that time? They became the, the Lord Almanus Professor of Arabic and the Regis Professor of, of Hebrew, as well as of, of, of Arabic and indeed of Persian at, at Oxford and Cambridge, respectively. So they're the most distinguished Orientalists in the land, except they're they had no formal relations with the East India Company because they thought the East India Company was a godless, exploitative enterprise. These were both of them, they were Christians. They're part of the evangelical wave, which at that point was this in many ways, as I came to understand myself, overcoming my own prejudices, I have to say. I came to understand that the evangelicals at this point, these were the, the humanitarians of a religious age you know, of a time when everyone was religious, but the evangelicals were the, the anti-slavery movement, of course, was led by them. And they were also great critics of the East India Company. So McBride and Lee then, they were trying to, over previous years, part of this movement to force the East India Company to allow in missionaries in order to not only exploit Indians, but also to bring them education. And of course, as they saw it, as the evangelicals saw it, the, the salvation of Christianity. So the Orientalism they're involved in wasn't the kind of stuff that that uh, that, uh, that Edward Said was writing about at all. They were interested in primarily in translating the Bible into, uh, well, into pretty much every language on earth, but particularly into the languages they knew, which was Arabic and Persian. And it's... Um, it's in that into that enterprise that Mirza Saleh and Mirza Jaffa are both brought into, in fact, which to me was sort of really, in many ways, really puzzling. But I think what was very interesting for Mirza Saleh and what he does really start to think about a lot through about this is that, well, what happens when you make the scripture of a religion available to everybody? Because what was really key about these missionaries and this evangelical enterprise was that it was a very Protestant evangelical enterprise, which meant that you should allow everybody to be able to be able to read and write for themselves and to be able to read the word of God in their own language. So this isn't, you know, sort of a Catholic notion of, you know, at this point, the Bible is only in Latin for people who can read Latin. So Mr. Sile, I think, gets very interested in this. And through Lee and McBride, he starts to meet all sorts of other evangelicals, as, and, and indeed Mr. Jaffa does as, as well, who are, as I say, the humanitarians, the sort of NGO founders. They found the Sunday school movement. And, and by this point, Mr. Jaffa and, and, and Mr. Sile speak and write English perfectly. So I start to find letters with these other uh, Sunday school founders and these other Christian priests in places like Bristol. Uh, and, and, and actually, it's Mirza Jaffa, in one of his letters, he writes this letter pleading to this country vicar, please open a Sunday school, please found a Sunday school. Because the Sunday school movement was bringing literacy, bringing education, and of course, bringing an ability to read the Bible, as well as other books, of course, to country people and, and kids who had to work six days a week in the factories. So these were really humanitarian enterprises. So 
Mrs. Ali, Mrs. Jaffa, sorry, Mrs. Ali and, and, and uh, Samuel Lee actually struck up what seems to be a really close friendship. And Mrs. Ali wrote in his diary an, an, an account, a biography of Samuel Lee that described how Lee had come from this country background, was the seventh son of a country carpenter, um, but had actually become really interested in languages as a boy. When he got time off from learning to carve wood, um, he found a Latin grammar and a Greek grammar. And then he found one of these cast off uh, Hindustani grammars, you know, because of the East India Company. And he started learning uh, Asian languages. And then eventually he learns Persian. It's actually the one of the uh, Christian missionary companies that pays for him to study at Cambridge because this country boy um, is never going to you know, have the qualifications, the social connections, or indeed the money to study at Cambridge. So Mr. Sali kind of strikes up this friendship with him. And, and ultimately, in fact, Mr. Sali and the other students write a letter of reference, which is still there. I found in the university archives in Cambridge 200 years on, and it was a letter of reference testifying to um, Samuel Lee's extraordinary ability with in Arabic and Persic, as it was called then, as the students called it in English, Persian. And that enabled uh, Samuel Lee, who'd never been able to himself take a degree at, at Cambridge because of his social background, his poverty. But nonetheless, through this letter, it was actually a letter for a royal grant that enabled Lee to become the Regis Professor, the King's Professor of Hebrew at Cambridge, even though he didn't actually even have a BA degree. So, yeah, altogether, it was a really kind of unexpected friendship that according to everything we might think now, you know, kind of Saidian Orientalism, uh, evangelical Christianity, missionaries, all this stuff, this should not have been a friendship, but it clearly very much was. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. As a matter of fact, I I still am a big fan of Said, but it's been in the past uh, couple of years I've been trying to read it more critically and I've come to realize some of the overgeneralization of the book Orientalism. And it was mainly as a result of reading more about the encounters between the Muslim words and, 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 and England, and in the same way also in America, because Muslims lived in America. Most of them were brought as slaves, of course, lived in America for 400 years. And when you come to think of it, even, for example, uh, Russian literature, it's, it's, it's in the same way. You, you, mean you can, it wasn't only the West and the East. Russians had the same kind of Orientalist approach to other smaller uh, countries that lived there. So it, it's a global paradigm, but it it's not always a one way street. Uh, so yeah, I've yeah, come to understand exactly, a lot yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you know, Said published his book forty five years ago. You know, our knowledge moves forward. Thankfully, you know, we, he's he's opened questions for us, which we explore and we find different answers. I, th- I probably should also mention why we're on Samuel Lee. Actually, since uh, I know more that you uh, you lived in New Zealand, that actually Samuel Lee also ho- ho- hosted the first two Maori that ever came to to visit England. And, uh, and subsequently, he tried, tried to learn the Maori language from them. And actually, it was Lee who wrote then and published, I believe I'm correct in saying this, the first ever uh, printed grammar of the Maori language. So he was a really kind of voracious, uh, you know, kind of linguist that was happy to, you know, kind of talk to anybody who could teach him a new language. Wow, fascinating. I got it do more research on this one. I'm sure my friends in New Zealand will find it amazing. <laughs> uh, 
How about there, uh, these six students' religious beliefs? They were Muslims, as you mentioned, and they remain Muslims. But uh, did they ever, their religious beliefs, undergo any changes as a result of uh, the encounters they had with the West, with England, with new sciences and with the new people they met there? I, I, th- I think so. I mean, you know, as a historian and, you know, I'm a historian of, of Muslims. As I said, I'm also a historian of Islam. And what that means is that, you know, I, I, I understand religions as, as, you know, evolving and changing through history as people, you know, explore them, express their religiosity in different ways. And having written then a micro history of these six young Muslims in, in the course of five years in England, you know, I would, you know, hope to be able to find some, you know, some changes as well and and so i mean on the one hand i mean i think it's important to recognize that yeah i mean as you and i know and i'm sure many of our listeners know you know what it means to be muslim you know varies a great deal now as it did then although theoretically muslims shouldn't drink alcohol many iranians did as many travelogues there at the time would describe that i remember one expression in the quaint english of the period the there's somebody who described his Persian host as being valiant topers, which meant that they could knock back quite a few drinks. And and Mr. Sali himself was, you know, kind of rather interesting. I managed to find uh, the, uh, 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 what would you call it, sort of a, a, a receipt or something for his import of several cases of wine and port that he'd expressly put that these are for his own consumption so that he wouldn't have to pay import duties for this French wine and uh, bottles of port from Portugal. So, yeah, I mean, he's a, what we would perhaps now call, I don't know, a liberal Muslim or whatever, you know, but he was like many Iranians at the time, you know, who were Muslims who probably said their prayers, but nonetheless, you know, kind of enjoyed a glass or two of, of the fine wines of Shiraz. Now, in terms of, yeah, I mean, their actual religiosity, Mr. Sali, I mean, it's Mr. Sali who writes my great record, of course, but, you know, he'll describe what, particularly his closest companion, his best friend among the six, Mr. Jafar, the, uh, the engineer. Um, I get closer sense of the two of them. And they make this kind of tour after they leave Oxford uh, and leave the evangelicals of Oxford who'd, uh, who'd hosted them and, and whom they, you know, describe in, you know, in very warm terms, Mrs. Sutton describes in very warm terms. Then they go off actually to uh, the countryside, the West Country of England. And actually they make this journey among the, among the, it's a sort of a dual technological mission, mission looking at these, um, the first paper mills, because Mrs. Sutton is now very interested in, in printing. When he leaves Iran, there's no printing press in Iran at that point. Printing comes is adopted pretty late in, in, in the Middle East, basically around sort of 1815 to 20. So when they leave Iran, there's no printing press in the country. So he's interested in printing. But now he's also been writing a lot about newspapers, and he realizes, wow, if you, if you print a lot, you've got to have a ready supply of paper. So they go to one of these new industrial paper mills. And then they start to go to these other mills. And when they're in these other mills of the West Country, in these villages, in the sort of the valleys of Gloucestershire, um, that they start to meet these other types of Christians who aren't the, the establishment Church of England, like the, you know, the professors of Oxford and so on. They're Baptists and they're Methodists. Uh, they're, as I say, these kind of, um, you know, kind of people who are founding, working with the, what's emerging then is, you know, the first industrial working class, you know, in, in place like Bristol, which was, you know, major early industrial port. So they start to get interest, as I say, as I mentioned, in the Sunday school movement. In um, they have discussions with uh, with a woman called Hannah Moore, who was a contemporary of Jane Austen, and uh, who and who wrote a number of novels 
but she was, as it were, more didactic and sort of Christian expressly. I mean, Jane Austen was a Christian. She was a daughter of a, of a reverend, you know, of a country vicar. Um, but, but Hannah Moore's novels were more sort of expressly didactically Christian. Uh, and one of the books that we know that Mirza Sali reads, um, he describes Hannah Moore giving it to him, um, uh, and he describes himself reading it. It's called Practical Piety. And I think he gets very interested then, my sense is, in, in this new form of religiosity that's really expressed by these evangelicals, that you've got to put your faith into action. You've got to help people. You've got to help the poor. You've got to teach the poor. Um, and I think this is an idea that he's very interested in. He's also, I think, very interested in this new, you know, this interplay between, you know, what, we, what I think, you know, we might call the, you know, the, the of cultural technologies, the printing press, and the way that interplays with religion as well. Oxford at this point is, you know, the world centre for printing Bibles. In fact, the Bible production at Oxford that comes out of this evangelical movement, everyone should have a Bible in a language they could understand. You know, the principles of this evangelical enlightenment, as it's been called, actually, by some recent historians, that thinking that, you know, the religious movements at the time weren't the opposite of science. They were sort of new rationalising forms of, of religious thinking, you know, evangelical enlightenment, as it's been called by one historian. So Mirza Sali takes that back with him to Iran too. So although he takes back a printing press, another thing that he does is he becomes the first person in Iran to, to print the Quran. Now, it's not a translated Quran. That's going to be probably a step too far that the, the ulama, the mullahs, the, the religious classes in Iran, you know, are not going to allow that for, you know, it, it, even in the, it's only really 100 years later that, the big translation movement of the Quran in the Islamic world spreads. But he's the first person to print the Quran, to be able to make at least the, the book and the Arabic text available to far more people than before. So, yeah, so we see these movements of a new, let's say, idea of applied religiosity, uh, practical piety in Hannah Moore's words, as well as, you know, these new technologies of religion, of making the scripture available to people. There's one more thing I might say as well about Mirza Saleh's religiosity, and that's that, you know, this is a period of, uh, of the, you know, the, the age of the Freemasons. And, of course, the Freemasons themselves do come out of the Enlightenment, and they come out of, uh, there's different ways of reading, and, of course, big debates about, you know, the, about Freemasonry. But let's say this earlier Freemasonry is, is a, is a, creates a place where people of different religious backgrounds, different, you know, coming out of the wars of religions in Europe, where, you know, all different Christian sects, let alone different religions per se, you know, uh, killing one another for the best part of a century, destroying Europe. And, and Mr. Sali then actually becomes himself a Freemason. And one of the kind of ideas he's interested in is when he meets these other, other universalists, the Freemason universalists, but also the... Christian universities, who, who are the Unitarians, one of these other dissenting groups. And he's very, Mr. Sully's particularly interested in the Unitarians. I actually tracked at the time the kind of the people he was meeting. And after he met these particular Unitarian ministers, especially someone called Land Carpenter, who, who, who had earlier actually hosted um, Ram Mohan Roy, a Persian-speaking Hindu who became the founder of reformist modern Hinduism and actually died in Bristol where Mrs. Sali had been and was buried there. Actually, he came after Mrs. Sali, I should say, not before. Um, and, and the discussions that uh, Mrs. Sali has with and about Land Carpenter, he's translating this 
English word Unitarian of, of Christians who weren't so much concerned in a trinity of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. They're Unitarians whose Christianity is really focused upon the one unified God. And Mirza Sali translate the, the, translates their name as the Muwahidun. And of course, the Muwahidun is a word that's been used earlier by other, let's say, you know, Muslim comparative religionists, let's say, most famously Dara Shakur, the Mughal prince, who wrote a book, um, the Majmal al-Bahrain are taking a phrase from the Quran, the meeting of the two oceans, the two oceans of wisdom. And for um, uh, our Mughal prince then, uh, the two oceans of wisdom were Islam and Hinduism. And he too, you too, he too then, Dara Shakur, the Mughal prince, uses this term, Muwahidun, the Unitarians of India, to speak about the Hindus who believed in one God. So Mirza Sali is accepting these Christians as effectively being like like himself, you know, that these are Unitarians who are, you know, as I say, you know, kind of the recognition of a of a single God isn't the the sole, let's say, property of, of Muslims. And I think that's something he comes to realize, uh, you know, in his time in England as well through his discussions and indeed his, his friendships with not just Christians, but actually Christian priests. It's a fascinating story. <laughs> and uh, just have a couple of more questions. I know I've taken a lot of your time. <laughs> uh, so you did talk about Mirza Sala going back to Iran, starting the first newspaper there, uh, taking printing press with him. Do we know anything of the other five students, if if they also rose to some kind of prominence when they went back to Iran or the so- sorts of knowledge, science or inventions they took with them? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, yeah. Fortunately, I was able to find the sort of the uh, the records of, of what they took with them back to Iran. So they took a stack of medical books. Unfortunately, I don't know the titles, but I, I have a sense of a few of them. They took back a few books on geology, including Cuvée, uh, uh, the sort of the founder of modern geology, a French theorist. They took that back with them. So the whole stack of, of sort of medical, scientific, astrological books. They took telescopes, as I mentioned. Mezzasali took a uh, a small iron hand press that he'd got, he'd actually got from the Bible Society, the evangelical printer, with whom he actually learned to print by printing the translations of the, the New Testament into Arabic and into Urdu, into Hindi, the languages he knew then. That's how he learned to print, by you know, printing translation of the Bible, which perhaps influenced him later to print the Quran. So he takes back a printing press. Unfortunately, when he gets back to Iran, he thinks, I guess, he's going to be the, the Persian Gutenberg and I guess he deserved to be. But in the meantime, uh, another Persian uh, sort of uh, bureaucrat, another uh, Mirza had been sent to St. Petersburg, to the Russian capital, and he'd, in the meantime, brought back a press. Um, and they also brought back, uh, I think, a steam press, sorry, a steam engine as well, which is really very interesting. And this is Muhammad Ali, who was the craftsman, who's actually been sent to study lockmaking. But... But when he's in London, he realizes, no, no, I actually, you know, locks are kind of passe. You know, I'm in the sense of having just a revolution. So he works with someone called Alex Galloway, who was actually the friend of various kind of uh, um, what would become sort of the, you know, kind of working class revolutionary movements in, in, in London in that time. And also knew, I think, Olada Equiano, the, the former enslaved African who, you know, was a really major figure and, of course, wrote a very important book of his own as well. Um, so he takes back a, a steam press, uh, sorry, a steam engine too. And he also takes back with him a wife, an English wife. 
which is uh, you know kind of a as part of a, a part of these enduring friendships. And when we know from later letters that their marriage continued and they hosted other visitors that came through um, through uh, Iran in, in subsequent decades. And happily, all of the students, except in some ways Mirza Saleh, go on to really great careers. So one becomes the Mohandis Bashi, the, the chief engineer for the entire country. One of them becomes the, the sort of, the, I suppose, the chief medical officer or whatever one w- would say uh, for Iran and the private physician to the, the Shah. Um, another becomes the, um, so Muhammad Ali then, the one who brought back the, the, um, the steam engine and, and had actually learned to make modern weapons, modern rifles, working with Wilkinson's sword, who were by this point not just making swords. Uh, he becomes the the head of the the, the government foundry, and um, and then Mirza Saleh himself is almost appointed ambassador. He returns to England in glory in 1822, um, but isn't actually formally made an ambassador by the Iranian government. And then he's involved in a series of uh, of important sort of diplomatic engagements with the Russian Empire, and then he kind of fades out of. The historical record, at least as I was able to, to um, to trace it. So I'm really glad that, uh, that the um, last year or a year or two ago, the book was translated into Persian and published in Iran. Because I really hope, you know, historian or research in Iran might carry on Mirza Saleh's subsequent story and find out the actual. Hopefully, there is a happy ending for him too, as there was with with his others. And, and indeed, there was another. The other Mirza Jafar that went into. Uh, diplomacy, and as I mentioned, he, he did become an ambassador, and he was subsequently ambassador to uh, to Istanbul. Then ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, which was a really major position um, for him to have. So yeah, so they all went on to become really major figures, including having uh, important engagements with the the Darul Funun, the the House of the Sciences, I suppose one might translate it, which becomes effectively the the basis of what will become Tehran University, still Iran's main university to this day. So they really have, I think, this really uh, major lasting effect. And they're, as far as I'm aware, they remain patriots, they remain Muslims, but none of that overcomes their ability to learn among others and to make friends with others. And hence the the title of my book that, you know, kind of being perhaps a, a patriot and true to your own tradition, you know, kind of needn't, is not, you know, kind of a, doesn't mean that you shouldn't uh, be able to engage and celebrate and indeed learn from the love of strangers. Mm. And I guess this is a perfect segue to my final question. Given this, um, this, this micro history, this fascinating history of uh, mutual engagement between the uh, Muslim world and, and Christian world, let's say Iran and England, what lessons can it have for us in today's world in 21st century? And, you know, especially the first two decades of 20th century have been really, really turbulent with uh, the encounters between the, the, the Muslims and the Christians in the climate of Islamophobia, especially in the United States, partly maybe also in England. What, what lessons does this have for us today? Well, I think, as I wrote in the, the, the preface of the introduction to the book, that, that, I think if we don't think so much in in abstractions, in great abstractions, the West, Islam, and this is the case for you know whether we're you know Muslim or European or Christian or whatever else it might be. You know, I hope this is a you know kind of a you know it does apply to everybody because after all these grand abstractions, 
you know, kind of uh, the the kind of uh, give fuel to Islamist terrorists as they do to Islamophobes as well, you know. And in the entry to the book, actually, I describe when I was myself narrowly avoided a a kidnapping and very tragic event in in Yemen when I was there, and uh, and, and people were murdered by Al Qaeda who were a few minutes just ahead of me in a, on a journey across across Yemen. So you know, I'm, I'm sort of all too personally aware, really, of you know both the uh, you know of the Islamophobic and the Isla- dangers of Islamism, but I think both really come about a certain way of thinking, as I say, about abstractions, these grand abstractions, rather than thinking of through what I try to do in the book and show, well, these people were individual humans who met other individual humans. And it was through their own ability to overcome then an idea of that they're among the Farang, among the Franks, that they were among the, the Kuffar, the infidels, that they're among individual human beings who they befriended. And in turn, who recognized that they were the infidels on the Christian side. They were Mirza Saleh. They were, you know, kind of affable, intelligent young men. So I think really that's something we can learn and practice really. Like, you know, for my own work as a historian, going back to where we began our conversation, came from me, you know, not learning from abstractions, but actually wandering around Iran and Yemen and Syria and Pakistan and lots of other places and meeting individuals. And so, you know, Islam and Muslims weren't an abstraction. It was, oh, this is Hussein or this is Hassan or this is actual individual people. And everyone can do that, I think, by people we bump into and meet in in our daily lives in, you know, kind of the globalized world that we live in now. So I think that is, you know, if my book, you know, if, if uh, you know, I don't like to grandly think I can really teach anyone anything, but, you know, perhaps we write books to sort of in, uh, to aspire to do so. And so, you know, if that if there is a lesson, I think it's that, that to think not in abstractions, but in terms of individual human beings yeah yeah and that has also been my personal experience as well when i moved out of iran and people talking to me when, when i remember when i told people like they asked me where i come from or why i studied i said i studied english literature and my field of my phd research was on eco-feminism and the next question was where you come from iran and it was i was a party drinking a glass of wine the next question that immediately followed was are you muslim and I knew where those sorts of stereotypes came from. And I said, look, I'm not a practicing Muslim, right? <laughs> I used to say no because I'd never been a practicing Muslim. And then I said, well, yes, because, yeah, culturally I'm a Muslim, right? I'm no different, you know, as you mentioned, from the people you meet around you, Hassan Hussein or Mirza Saleh, who was a practicing Muslim. He also drank wine. It's all about uh, the, the, the story of individuals and what we can mutually learn from from one another, and staying away from those generalization and uh, vacuous abstractions, as you discussed. Exactly. And through, ultimately, yeah, yeah through, as you just described it so well, through conversations. I mean, you know, we learn from yeah. each other. You know, that's the only way anybody learns in life through, yeah, you know, exactly. and from, from each other. Uh, are you currently working any, on any other monograph? Yes, I well, I've, I've I've got one coming out actually um, this very month, uh, and and it's also actually about how different people have learned from one another. But in this case, it's uh, how different peoples around Asia, effectively, how people from the Middle East and South Asia, what's now India, Pakistan, and Central Asia, Afghanistan, and how Western South Asia learned to 
understand and interpret and appreciate the languages, cultures, and religions of East and Southeast Asia, of China, Japan, and Buddhist Southeast Asia. So, um, yeah, and that book's called How Asia Found Herself, uh, a story of intercultural understanding. And for our listeners, I have sort of secured a promise from Niall to talk to him soon about that book as well. Uh, Dr. Niall Green, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Such a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it enormously. And uh, and anyone who's continued to listen to, to me this far, thank you so much for bearing with. Thanks again, Mortaz. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>